So I was thinking about um, um, just this morning and this message, and because there's been a lot of things already we talked about, I'm, I'm going to try my best for it not to be as, as long as a message. I just felt like that as we are getting close to ending this whole sermon series, which is a part of a whole meta-series of, that we're doing through the book of Acts, just two more weeks, today and next week, um, that what we want to do in this series was to angle it in a way where it could really kind of give us a good send-off and a sending out from the book of Acts. And we felt that there was no better way to really do that than by addressing the things that maybe we need to face in life. And so far, we've talked about how we have to face our limitations. We have to, to face, like, our privilege. We have to face the religiosity and the things that we get so lost in becoming cradle Christians that many of us identify as, the things that we kind of turned a blind eye to that is just absurd in the church. But it's not just these kind of negative things that we need to face and do something about. There eventually comes a point where we have to face the possibility of having real potential to our lives, that our lives over time can accumulate to great things, to create great significant moments in our world that help people, that bring love to people. And it may be hard to see at first this passage, but I want us to get there. Now, before we get there, though, I want to give you a story of great potential that happened in my life when I never saw it coming. Um, a lot of you may or may not know this, but I played sports in high school, and I was pretty good at it. Um, I played baseball, and at a young age, like, I just kind of tried, I tried to find something to throw myself into, didn't have a dad around, didn't really, like, didn't really have anybody to kind of like take me and work with me and kind of show me like, hey, here's what sports could look like. I just remember like I saw the Braves play on TV and I thought, I want to do that. Like I saw Michael Jordan play on TV and I wanted to do that, but my basketball game never got better as much as I practiced. But then I saw baseball and I thought, oh, I want to try that. And I got good at it at a young age. So I kind of took that with me. I ended up making the high school baseball team when I was in eighth grade in middle school. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. Like, there was a lot of, like, hope and potential put on me. And, like, for a little Iranian kid, like, Iranians don't play baseball. I don't know if you know this, but there aren't many of us abbeys out there, like, doing this stuff, okay? So I thought, all right, trailblazer, I'm going I'm to play baseball. And I get to high school, and my coach is just a – he's – He's not listening to this. Some people back home listen to my messages. He's not listening to this. He wasn't a good dude, all right? Like, the dude was just a shameful, shaming dude, all right? And he had a lot of stuff going on in his own life. And looking back on it, he just brought it and put it on a bunch of teenagers. And he was a rager. And he used shame to motivate you, which in turn just kind of beat me down. And I found that, like, all throughout high school, I was beat down for what I wasn't. I was beat down for what I didn't do time and time again. And I remember thinking, like, I think I'm better than how I'm playing. Like, why does it always feel so bad about myself? And then I got further into high school, and, and um, it started, like, these teams we had never really wanted to play for this guy, and they were always complaining. And I remember between my, my junior and senior year, I, I had a, a coach, a different coach, come alongside me and, and really help me. And I started getting better again at baseball. And all that being said, I got to the, the end of my senior year, and our team, not because of this coach, but in spite of this coach, pulled together, and we found ourselves in the state championship uh, for 3A, 
which isn't big, but it was big enough. Like there's up to 5A and we're right in the middle. And so we're playing for state championship and we're down one game and the other pitchers have been used up. And it's like this coach, all he's left with is to pitch me. And I remember, I remember thinking like how low my confidence was, but that something in me said, you got this, like you got to do it. And in, in one day, I pitched back-to-back because we were down one game in a, game in a series of two or three. And in one day, I pitched back-to-back games, and we won state championship. And I'm like, see, I know what I was doing this whole time. You're a horrible coach. You suck, and I'm good, right? Like, no, I didn't say that, but I, I remember looking back, like, what a hard time that was. And, and it's like I never thought I had this potential to actually do more. And then you ever had those moments where you do something, and you're like, I thought maybe that was possible, but honestly, I'm completely shocked this happened. Like you just have those moments, like those moments where it could be in your work, it could be in your parenting, it could be in maybe like the energy you're exerting in like in weightlifting or maybe in sports, whatever it may be, but it hits you like, I didn't know I could do that. It's, it's something creatively you put your hand to. And I wonder for a lot of us that if you look back to that moment what were all the things that led up to it? And my guess is that more than likely, you had a season that felt like almost like a prison. Like a season leading up to that moment when something happened that before then it was like, I suck, this can't happen, I'm no good, I don't know why I should do this, and everybody else around, everybody else around me tells me I should stop. Like you may not have those times, but I bet you if you're willing to examine those moments that you surprised yourself with potential, more than likely there was a season before it that was almost like a prison you had to sit and wait in for that moment. And I think in many ways we're kind of finding that here with Paul, that there's this moment that Paul has to really, in his potential, stand and give this incredible message to the most influential people in the Middle East, in his country. So much so that we'll see that, like, even this King Agrippa is like, I almost want to become Christian hearing you talk, Paul. It's like there's this moment Paul was waiting for, him and Eminem, right? You got to lose yourself in the moment. You never know what's going to happen. You got to eight mile this thing. You come from the wrong side of the tracks and then you get a rap battle and like Paul wins. I mean, I'm sorry, Eminem. Anyway, their stories are very close, trust me. But there are these moments that you have to like step into it and be ready for it. Now to all that, I want to kind of look at what led Paul up to this moment. Because we skip forward several chapters if you didn't notice. Like we're reading from the end of chapter 25 and 26, But last week, we were at the end of chapter 22. So I want to give like a recap of what's happened in this, in the last few chapters. And I'll, I'll put some things even, even on the screen for us. So we find at the end of chapter 22, when Drew gave a great message last week on privilege, I'd highly encourage you to listen to it, that what we found at the end of that time was that there was this uh, commander of centurions who was kind of over Paul and and Paul, like, he got these Pharisees and Sadducees fighting each other. Uh, if you didn't know this, this is like total uh, like Bible nerd stuff. Pharisees believed in resurrection, Sadducees didn't. So at the beginning of chapter 23, Paul's like, hey, yo, 
Like when Jesus comes back, he's a resurrected Lord and everybody else gets resurrected. And he like drops that bomb in the middle of the Pharisees and Sadducees and they all lose their minds. And they, it talks about how they're like clawing at each other and that the commander's so afraid that there's people are gonna die, he takes Paul out of there. Like Paul is totally messing with these people. And I love that because I do believe he is Enneagram 8. I truly believe that that is him. Like he just loves a good challenge, pops somebody in the face and let's go. So we find that at the end of chapter 22, then going into chapter 23, then Paul drops that bomb. Everybody's going crazy. Now, here's what we pick up in verse 10 of chapter 23. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So this is a hostile scene. And then we find the next verse. The following night, remember this, we're going to come back to it. The Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify, about, testify in Rome. Things get so violent, they need 200 soldiers next to, to divide this up. Listen, you send 200 soldier centurions to like take over land. Because these are like strong people. They had, it was so fierce in there, they had to bring in these 200 soldiers to break it up. And Paul's in the midst of this. And so then we find that they decide to move him to, to Governor Felix. And Felix is in Caesarea, which would be about 40 miles west of Jerusalem on the coast. So they then take him to Caesarea to be with Felix. And Felix then invites Ananias, the high priest, to come and have the conversation about what's going on here. What's going on between you and Paul? Because listen, this was such a kind of a niche religious thing happening that people who were Roman and Greek were like, why are they people, why are they losing their minds over this stuff? This isn't worth it. It's not worth fighting and tearing each other to pieces over all this stuff. And so we find that then Paul is transported there. Felix is trying to have the conversation with Ananias, but Felix also wants to keep things like cordial between the two sides at the same time while working both sides. So Felix is playing on both here. And we find that Felix keeps Paul in prison for two years. Keeps Paul in prison for two years. Paul is having to wait it out in prison having these endless, it would even say that he would bring him up to talk to him. Look at the next passage here, chapter 24, verse 27. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. He would bring Paul up, it said before this, on a regular basis to hear Paul talk about this Messiah, this king, this true king, who would one day, there'd be judgment if you weren't following this true king. And Festus would bring him up, and he would bring his wife to sit alongside of him and listen to Paul. And it said, thinking and hoping that Paul would start giving him money to pay him off to let him out. But Paul wouldn't. Don't you think about this. Paul simply wanted to go worship at temple during like Shavuot which we talked about that a couple weeks ago. That's all he wanted to do. It was Pentecost. He wanted to go worship. And all of a sudden, two years later, he finds himself still in prison for something that he never did. He never brought anyone who was unclean into the temple. 
He has to live with all these unfair accusations. Everything is leveraged against him, and he's in prison. Like, life does not work for Paul. If that was you, what would your attitude be? My attitude would be incredibly bitter. I'd have a lot of rage. It's so much so I'd probably end up with a lot of hopelessness because rage can't lead you to hope. Rage only lets you sit in bitterness and resentment of what life isn't and how it doesn't work. But that's where I would be. Two years of unjust imprisonment simply because he wanted to go worship. But it keeps building for Paul and building for Paul, and you get one shady person to another shady person to eventually find that he's handed over now to Festus. And Festus is wanting, he's wanted to make a good, like, splash with the Jews, and so he tries to bring the conversation back up between Paul and Ananias, the high priest, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And this time, Paul says, I'm sick of this. I appeal to Caesar. Send me to Rome. And so Festus is going, well, I, like, how much of an idiot would Festus look if he sent a guy who really had no reason to go appeal to Caesar? Like, if you're the most powerful person in the world, and you have this, like, foreigner come to you who was sent to you by one of your governors to go, you need to talk to this guy. He's Roman. He wants to appeal to you. And when Paul talks to him, like, Caesar's going, what are we having this conversation for? Like, imagine how foolish Festus would look. So Festus sits on this longer because he's like, I don't know what to do here. The guy has a right. He pulled his card, his privilege card to go to Rome, but I don't think there's anything to talk about, and I don't want to be embarrassed. So then we find that, that, uh, that King Agrippa II and Bernice, which just so you know, I've always found it interesting why it says Bernice. First off, King Agrippa II is the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who like did the genocide of all the babies at the beginning of Matthew and Luke, okay? So that's like, that's Dadikins, all right? Like way on before him. And so we have King Herod Agrippa here, and he is gonna be the last king of this Herodian dynasty. And he and his sister Bernice have a thing going on. So whenever he goes, Bernice goes. It is what it is, like history lets us know this, and it's a weird deal. But whenever you see Agrippa and Bernice, they're kind of rolling together, but it's kind of weird, all right? So we got Herod and Bernice rolling up in to Festus's place, and Festus is like, you got to hear this guy, Paul. And this is where we got to then this morning, that he brings Agrippa before Paul. And Agrippa hears this whole story. And we find, I like it in the message. I'm going to read here chapter 26, verse 24. That was too much for Festus. He interrupted with a shout, Paul, you're crazy. You've read too many books, spent too much time staring off into space. Get a grip on yourself, man. Get back in the real world. And it says, but Paul stood his ground. With all respect, Festus, your honor, I'm not crazy. I'm both accurate and sane in what I'm saying. The king knows what I'm talking about. I'm sure that nothing of what I've said sounds crazy to him. He's known all about it for a long time. You must realize that this wasn't done behind the scenes. You believe the prophets, don't you, King Agrippa? Don't answer that. I know you believe. But Agrippa did answer, keep this up much longer, and you'll make a Christian out of me, Paul. You'll make a Christian out of me. And Paul, still in his chains, said, that's what I'm praying for. 
whether now or later, and not only for you, but everyone listening today to become like me, except, of course, for this prison jewelry. <laughs> God, I love the message. But it's such a good, real conversation. Think about this. Paul's imprisoned. He could have been, like, completely overcome with bitterness and rage about how he didn't deserve this, and this isn't his plight in life, and God, where are you? Because guess who unctioned Paul in his spirit to go back to Jerusalem in the first place? God, the Holy Spirit. Guess who Paul is convinced spoke to him to go back and, like, go to Jerusalem? God, the Holy Spirit. And here we find Paul in prison. And yet in this moment, he has a chance for his influence to go way beyond what he ever did going from these little small towns to small towns all over the Greco-Roman world. Paul is being lined up for some significant influence, all because he was willing to sit it out in prison. Now here's where I want us to stop and think for ourselves. How much potential is there to your life that you've never even seen or experienced because you weren't willing to sit in the prison? How much, listen, we all want to be significant in our life. And I don't mean like, I don't mean like an Instagram influencer. I think we're all against that by now, right? Thumbs down. That's pretty gross. Like, and I'm not even talking about like making it on the news for your 15 minutes of glory. I mean, you get to die in peace one day knowing that your life played a role of significance. That you did something with your days and they counted. You did something with your marriage. You did something with your family. You did something with your work. You did something with the things that were handed to you. Every one of us one day want to be able to go to sleep eternally knowing that we played a significant role with what was handed to us. And how many of us find ourselves looking for those significant things that we can play a role in day to day, but we find they're so elusive and out of our grasp that we believe there's potential deep within to jump in and something happen, but we just keep missing it somehow. You ever find yourself in those places where you want to be used for something far greater than what you ever could have imagined. And I don't mean like to go witness to the whole world and evangelize them. Sure, okay, but I don't mean that. I mean just you playing a role in this world that really matters. I think we're all looking for it to some degree or another. I think that's why we work harder at our marriages, we work harder at our parenting, we work harder at our jobs, we work harder at our relationships, our friendships. But what do you do when those things aren't landing and they aren't happening? I think for a lot of us, what happens is we miss out on the potential that really could be because we're not willing to sit longer in the prisons that we find ourselves in. Because we think that's not right and that's not fair. This shouldn't happen to me. I don't deserve this thing right here. And so we find ourselves getting wrapped up in all this bitterness, wrapped up in all this resentment. I think also it's because a lot of us end up having a low threshold of pain right here on the first hand, right? I don't like things being uncomfortable. I really don't. Some of you think I'm lying because you're like, Robin, I'm always uncomfortable with you. Like I had a person, I had a person tell me one time, they're like, you hurt me a lot. 
And I, I don't interact with this person very much. I think we've had like five interactions or my whole existence, or maybe less than that. I said, what do you mean? They said, every time you preach a sermon, you hurt my feelings. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you may not need to be at this church. I don't know what to tell you. Like, um, like I don't like being comfortable, though. Like, I really don't. I, I don't like being challenged. I don't, I don't like the world shrinking in on me. That's why I punch it back in the face. Get off of me, world. <laughs> Get off of me, hard times. <laughs> like, I want to run. I want to satiate. Like, what, what's another pair of shoes? What, what's a good drink? What's a good movie? What's another, like, eight episodes that go an hour apiece on Netflix I can use the next two evenings to invest in? Yeah. <laughs> That's why I want those things, because I have a low threshold of pain. Maybe you do too. Like we don't like the idea of pain because it costs us something. And so therefore, when we're in an uncomfortable marriage, we're in an uncomfortable relationship, we're in an uncomfortable work environment, we just want to press eject buttons and get out. And we, we then question why like there's not as much or more substance to our lives than what we wanted. Like some of you in this room are going for like next levels of education, right? You're studying, getting degrees. You know those things aren't handed, right? They don't hand those things out. You're working for it. Others of you in this room are like really working hard, like at raising like a three-year-old. And you realize they lied to you. The terrible twos aren't when they're two years old. The terrible twos are from two to four years old. And they lied to you more because children are terrible. Like, th that's like, we don't realize that things keep happening. Things keep expanding. We don't want that. We don't want to try to, like, figure out that marriage that you're just so uncomfortable in and so lonely. It's like death by a thousand paper cuts. It's not worth it. So I'm going to press the eject button. No, I'm not going to leave you right now. I'm just going to vacate you emotionally. It's hard out there, but all of us know this. Deep inside, you know, if we're willing to let there be some time invested, change can happen. That in the midst of our prisons, there's always more potential. Even Dr. King saw this, and he saw it very beautifully and clearly. It's in your bulletin. As my sufferings mounted, I soon realized that there were two ways in which I could respond to my situation. Either react with bitterness or seek to transform the suffering into a creative force. I decided to follow the latter course. Listen, I said this before, you and I will never grow into the more significant things that we're waiting for in life. Like, I won't appear one day and wake up with a six-pack. Like, it's just not going to happen. Like, it's just not. I keep praying for it. I keep asking the Lord for it, right? Right? And the Lord hasn't granted that to me. Like, you don't wake up with these things. You don't grow into it. You work for it. And the question is going to be, what will you do with that moment that's so hard? You either come bitter in it, that's one choice, or you can turn it and creatively do something with it. Dr. King shows us here that we must either resent our hardships, which means we will live in self-pity and denial, 
We will live against things. We will live in lots of rage. We will live in a woe is me. And this is what all those things are, by the way. Whenever I'm living in self-pity, that just means I'm unwilling to face the deep pit of sadness, which is my life. And I'm demanding you, if you're around me, to experience that for me. And by the way, I'm first in line with self-pity. I love that stuff. Until my wife tells me, you're self-pitying and I'm not going to do this with you. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Like, we have to learn to face these times in our lives. Otherwise, they consume us and suck us in. So we either can live in that space or we can let it be taken and transformed. We can take those hardships and see how something different can happen. I think it takes a couple of things in those hardships. It's even a part of our practices as a church. We have eight practices. I think the first thing that we have to consider in these prison places in life is first to, like, be present, to, like, just be there, and to be in the waiting room. Any of you, so I lose my mind when I go to the doctor, and I don't go to the doctor a lot. If you're a doctor, I love you. But I lose my mind sometimes when I go to the doctor because I'll find when I'm sitting in the doctor's office, when I scheduled an appointment at 10 o'clock, I don't get to see the doctor until 10.30. And every time I go to the doctor, I will go to one of the assistants and go, why am I here at 10 and it's 10.15? What's happened here? And I'm like, this happens in no other profession in the world except here. And so, okay, now I'll go sit down and I will wait longer in the doctor's office, right? Like I hate being in the waiting room and I bet you do too. I don't like having to wait. But here's what I love that Henry Nouwen has to say about waiting. A waiting person is a patient person. The word patience means the willingness to stay where we are and live the situation out to the full in the belief that something hidden will manifest itself to us. Just look at that for a second. To be a waiting person is a patient person. It means to stay where we are and to live the situation out to the full in belief that something hidden will manifest itself to us. Friends, do you find yourself in a waiting room this morning? Do you find yourself having to wait out something really, really hard? Do you find that like this marriage, this relationship, this job, this church is too much? And my threshold of pain is just too low, and I want to go satiate. The way you know if that's the case is, how often do you spend time satiating yourself? Just try it this week. Try checking out how many times you want to get away from your life. And then you'll have a good idea how much of your life you don't want to deal with. Same for me. And what would it look like for me to not spend my time doing that, but instead let myself be in those spaces to see what can come out of that? Because maybe with enough pressure and enough time, things could transform. A diamond could come out of it that I never realized. And yet to do that, you can't just have good mental awareness and vision. It takes one more thing. Earlier in the passage, I said, pay attention to this. If you don't mind, go back to where... Uh, it was chapter 23, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to start verses 10 through 12. Just look at this at the bottom here. See, Paul has got a lot of crap he's got to deal with coming up. And the question is going to be, can he make it through? 
And so just notice this here. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul. In the ESV, it says he was beside Paul. It's like I, I envision Paul like sitting on a chair, on a bench, his head in his hands. And he looks up and the Lord is near him. And it says, take courage. You know, the word courage in Latin means heart, core. That's the core, that's the core of courage, heart. Take heart. Have you ever tried to will yourself to have courage? Like sit in a room and like, you can do this. I'm gonna go do this. And you go out and you face all like the lions of life and you're like, nope, can't do this. Yeah, I'm going back to my room. Because you never were meant or able to give yourself enough courage to face your life. That's why it's called encouragement, to give encouragement. You need people in your life who give courage to you when you don't have enough courage on your own to find. And here we find that Paul has a God saying, here's your courage, Paul, step into it. And by the way, what you're stepping into, Paul, is prison. By the way, Paul's going to go for a long time. But Paul, one of these days you're going to get out and there's going to be something waiting for you that'll be profound and your influence and significance will go further than you ever realized. Because by the way, next, Paul does go to Rome and there is influence happening in Rome itself. So this is what I want to leave us with. Do you have a God, a Lord, a Jesus, a Christ, who in your moments gives you courage? And that's a hard question for you to consider. Because I'm not talking about the good old days with, with you know, Sunday school answer Jesus here. I'm talking about you've had to walk your life out and it's been hard. And do you have a Jesus that sits with you and gives you courage through the Spirit? And the way that you find that is, do you have people in your life that walk with this Christ that can give you that courage so you can take heart and step into your life? And as we end, what I'd say is this. If you don't and you need that and you find yourself in a prison today hoping that one day significance can come from this time and you're lonely, then this table is for you. Because what you'll find is, is that it's more than a memorial. It's a promise. It's the gospel that he is with us, even in our prisons, and even when life is not working. Let's pray. So, Lord, now we come to your table, and we truly, reverently, and honestly, greedily ask that we be able to sense your presence now, to receive from you what it is you've done for us, but also to know that we are not having to walk in these places alone or sit in these prisons by ourselves, and that if we're willing to let you come encourage us, we might find the longevity needed to wait it out and then let it bring about more potential and more significance of what our lives could be about than we ever could have imagined. In your name we pray. Amen.